Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Listeners, as you know, on this podcast, we discuss the intangibles. The connected intelligence that builds companies, forms organizations, and teams. One area of life that can inspire and inform who you are is your experience playing sports. Sports offer life lessons on how to be a good teammate, how to recover from a loss, and how to build resilience. So, how might someone's experience in sport shape how they develop internally as a person and externally within their community? Dr. Richard Norman from Toronto Metropolitan University is the person to ask. He is a researcher, lecturer, and futurist who's currently examining leadership within the Canadian sport industry. He focuses on developing approaches that open up dialogue and discourse towards a more humane and morally driven worldview. Please enjoy Dr. Richard Norman. Had a pretty interesting path to academia. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I specialize on, on taking a look at uh, the intersection of race, sport, and colonialism. That's kind of my area. It's sort of morphed over... You know, even in the past couple of years that I've been at TMU, it's, uh, you know, it started with a project and now it's just, you know, the connections are run deep. A lot has changed since 2020. So how did I get here? That's a really good question. You know, I'm a bit <laughs> older. You can tell the gray in my beard and all that kind of stuff. Academia wasn't my chosen profession. In fact, I was actively fighting against it, partly because my whole family are academics. Um, <laughs> now, now I've brought, been brought into the family business. So I basically started and I went through a number of different careers first in IT. So I have a background taking a look at information technology, um, geographic information systems, if you know what those are. Um, a lot of land-based management. I was at BC for a while. Um, and that was really an interesting experience being in British Columbia, dealing with forestry companies, looking at, you know, all that kind of stuff. And of course, as a black man traveling around the province, going to all these little small communities, um, quite eye-opening in comparison to even when I, I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. And, you know, it's when I grew up, it wasn't the most diverse place, let's put it that way. So when I was out there, I've always been a sports guy. I, I played varsity soccer at Queens, and it's always really been part of my life. Uh, played hockey, volleyball, you know, um, went out to, to Vancouver. And of course, you know, you, you got to learn how to snowboard when you're out there. So that totally, dude. A, oh, it was it was such a passion. It was so fun uh, to pick that up, too. And um, and I also picked up tennis. So I had one of my best friends um, who's actually passed away now. He taught me how to play tennis and, you know, we would play every day. And I got good enough so that I could actually play in tournaments at the B level, you know, <laughs> great, but I, I could still. So I decided, yeah, I'm going to go. And he suggested you got to go to the Jericho, right? Because it's the it's the one, out in, you know, and it was mostly because it was held at the Jericho Club. So I don't know if you're familiar with Jericho Club. It's fancy, you know, right on the lot, uh, right on the water. And uh you know, 50 grand to join that kind of thing. Like it's, it's that level. And right. so you go there as, you know, the nondescript just so that you can use the facilities and, you know, maybe potentially steal a towel or two, you know, <laughs> I think. 
Um, so he suggested I try this out. And I was like, okay, yeah, but you got to wear tennis whites. And it's like, tennis whites. Like, it's not like I didn't know what they were, but it's like, oh, people in Canada? I thought it was just Wimbledon or something like that. <laughs> anyway, so that sort of prompted this question in my mind. Like, why is this facility still you know, holding on to a tradition that doesn't really make any sense in this day and age. Like from my perspective, you know, mm-hmm. assuming that everyone is racially aware and, you know, all that kind of stuff, because I bought into the other Trudeau's vision of Canada. Yeah, I'm not a lot. So the other Trudeau <laughs> um, talking about multiculturalism and racial tolerance and all this. So it's like the fantasy that we're you know, we honor everybody's background and all this kind of stuff, yet we're holding on to this tradition, which is really kind of wacky in my mind. So that started me to think about these deeper questions. Um, and I went and did my master's in strategic foresight and innovation at uh, OCAD University, which took me on a completely different tangent. And that's all about futurism. It's like, how do we think about the future? What's the future going to be like? How do we make businesses more profitable? All that stuff. But it also made me start to think about, well, what is our future? What do we want our future to really be like? And how do we actually plan to make that better? So that led me into sort of more going into the strategic uh, planning, um, revisioning, you know, leading organizations down that those those questions. Like, you know, what are you really trying to accomplish? Yeah, you might be good now, but are you prepared for 10, 15 years down the road? What does that look like? Um, and that's sort of, you know, the whole way that I became a PhD was I did my major reader, uh, my, my master's on the future of tennis in Canada. And, in a, and, you know, sort of like going through this idea about like, what is it going to be like in 15 years? And then to try to apply some business practices to that, sort of like, you know, do a SWOT analysis of like, what are the opportunities? What are the strengths, weaknesses? What, what's going to be on the horizon for an organization like Tennis Canada 15 years? Um, so my connection into the curling world is kind of bizarre. And that's what led me into my PhD. So my one of my best friends, her company is Goldline Curling Equipment, and it's used by, you know, top professionals and all that. And so she took me to a curling bond spiel, you know, and so how naive I was about curling. And this is going back about 15 years now. I didn't even know what a draw was. And so she's like, yeah, come and play. And like, you know, you will have a really good time. So, of course, we're having a few drinks. And then somebody comes up to me that I just met and says, oh, yeah, you're you're on the ice in 15 minutes. And I'm like, what? Like. <laughs> I thought we were drawing for teams. I had no clue how to play. Like I was that naive. So fast forward, I do my master's and I start and 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 people in the curling world see a lot of similarities between the structures that both sports have. So I went to talk to Dr. Heather Mayer at the University of Waterloo. And I was hoping, you know, I could get some research money. I can continue doing this kind of weird area that I, that I exist in. And she said, Hey, why don't you do, you know, PhD in this? And it's like, I never considered it's like, yeah, well you should do it. Deadlines next week. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so I I kind of feel like I sort of stumbled along the path to get to academia. It's not been something that I've been so charted on. Um, And then 2020 happened and everything changed, right? For me, uh, my relationship to 
to race, my relationship to Canada, um, really having to do a deep dive into my own background. So I'm transracially adopted, which means I was adopted into a family that's not culturally the same. Um, so brother and sister are white, mom and dad are white. Um, grew up in Kingston, Ontario. So I really had to go and sort of unpack my whole life and sort of recognize what is my relationship to blackness? What's my relationship to white supremacy that we find ourselves with? The, the, you know, the, the, the structures that are presented in front, in front of me, what that's meant, you know, in different situations that I found myself in, in particular, my professional career where you have code switching, not necessarily being yourself. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, I got to admit, it was pretty hard to, to walk through that while I'm supposed to be researching race and sport and, you know, putting this all together. So it was like living my life, doing this work and I'm doing this work in my professional life. Wasn't really getting a lot of break. Can I ask you a bit about when you mentioned the term code switching, can you just explain for our listeners what you mean by that? And was that happening not just in your personal life, but also in between the research you were doing and your experience as a Canadian at that time? Yeah, like, I mean, code switching is easiest way to look at is that you're not necessarily bringing your full identity, your full self into the situations. You're basically switching to to mimic the codes that are put forward in front of you. And, and it's basically a way of assimilating and fitting in. I mean, for a while, I was sort of referring to myself as a chameleon. And it, it becomes a challenge because I even have to code switch a little bit sometimes when I go and, and remember my own blackness um, because it's not something that I necessarily grew up with in the same way as, you know, everybody, like if you're born into, you know, a family and a community and, and, and all that. So I had to actually search that out when I was more of an adult, which is something that most people don't even have to go through that kind of process. So it's really that relationship and, you know, Gosh, I mean, identity is all about relations. So, you know, it's like, I don't have to tell you that. It's like who you are in your professional career, how you present yourself, even in different situations within that professional. Because there are some places where you have privilege and power. There are other places you don't. Um, you know, even, you know, in, in sort of how our paths cross. It's like, you know, I'm introduced as Dr. Rich now. <laughs> Is a weird thing for me because, you know, it, it, we're sitting on a call. It's like, well, there's other doctors here. Like, it's not like this is a, it's just, I, it's a moniker almost rather than, oh, actually, you know, you've gone through this process to get a doctor, right? <laughs> it's your so, brand now. It's my brand. It's my brand. So in 2020, what I really started reflecting on is like, why has Blackness been something that I had to both embrace and also distance myself at the same time. And this is where the code comes in. This is where the switching, this is where, you know, my background, I had to interrogate it and coming up with some sort of hard truths about what Canada is, my relationship to Canada, my relationship to my professional career, um, sort of why I stay in the area that I am now. Um, I'm super critical of a lot of things, even though that, as a collection of people that live in a certain location in the world, which we now refer to as Canada, there's a lot of good, you know, connective tissue here. There's lots of things, but we have to contend with a, with a history that is 
that is not what the history that I grew up with. And as you did that searching in that time, what were the most salient realizations you had or what sat with you to take you to the place of the deepest reflection as you were in that period of time? Well, I mean, none of this is actually really, uh, you know, something that I hold on to very closely anymore. I mean, you know, go read my dissertation. It's a personal, almost like an autobiographical sketch of what I do. I talk about, you know, the first time that I was called nigger and what that was like for me or walking into, you know, I was seven and I walked into a, you know, a clothing shop in Oxford, England, and the shopkeeper turned to my mom and said, no, you can't bring him in there. Like, so it's, it's very sort of front and center, but I think that what happened in 2020 was recognizing the sort of the violence and the, the trauma that comes along with this caring race with you throughout this. And, you know, the search for normalcy in a, in a certain way, like part of the thing of always having been othered, like you're always on the outside is you carry around that pain like it's a normal thing, like that you just, well, of course I have to exist. And it's, you know, I just had to reflect on uh, on Herb Carnegie's life. Somebody asked the question, well, maybe what was it like in the 30s and 40s? And it's like, I have no clue. The amount of violence and trauma that people that I am now sort of grateful for their experiences had to endure for me to even get to the place where I am. And think about it from that perspective that, yeah, it's traumatic and I have psychological scars, but it's nothing like what the generation that was before me. So part of the big realization for me is that ancestry and legacy is so important to me now in a way that I never thought of before. It's not that I'm just a dad and I have a son and want to pass that on, but there is sort of there's a mechanism in place that if you're standing on the, on the on the shoulders of the ancestors that you have an obligation to actually feed into that same process that got you to where you are and have to hand that off to the next generation so part of my work i think now particularly dealing with the future is i want to make sure that youth are involved in the futures that i create and that i'm not the one telling them what needs to happen that I am creating spaces and opportunities for people that look like me or even don't look like me that haven't had that voice before. And, and that's, that's my work. Um, so those are the things that really jump out. It sounds like your work right now is truly honoring, like you said, the shoulders of so many that you stand on. And do you feel that connection all the time in your work when you work with students or engage with youth and talking about the future, what are some of the themes that have come up over the last few years in what they're telling you and what you're hearing and what you're making space for? I don't necessarily think about it all the time. And in fact, the reflection back was a really good pause for me to to recognize that now, in fact, you have to honor the the people that have come before in a way that you could sort of push history off a little bit you know, oh yeah, I'm okay, and and Malcolm X, and they did their thing, but, you know, it really doesn't hit home. But then when you start to chart your own life and who's been involved in it, and, and, you know, in the Canadian context and who's around and what blackness means in Canada, as opposed to always looking south of the border for those kinds of recognitions and, oh, they had to battle through, you know, child slavery, and now they're, you know, look where people are, like Barack Obama, well, there are sort of more practical and immediate 
you know, um, people that have touched my life that I recognize, oh, actually, you were doing this before. And I actually, I'm not the first person to think about race and sport. I'm not the first person to talk about my experience of all the racial, you know, uh, intolerance that I had to go through playing sport. And it's trying to figure out what does that progression look like, that movement within those kinds of themes? What do we need to attend to looking at the past? And what can we then push forward into the future that is different to open up a space for, for other people? So I think the theme that, you know, I'm really responsive to right now in my work is my understanding of what a 20-year-old is, is from my projection back of what I was as a 20-year-old. And it's a convoluted way of saying, I have no clue what a 20-year-old thinks in this day and age. Not really. And so I was just working on a project with MLC Launchpads, and they have a youth advisory, and uh, came across these amazing individuals that we were doing a workshop, and it was all about sort of sport and inclusion and all that stuff. But we started with just what's going on in your lives? What's, what are you passionate about? What, are you, what keeps you up at night? And it was amazing to hear what they came back with. And there are trends there and the ways that the youth of the world today are thinking that I would never have expected a 20-year-old to attend to. Like what? Like legacy, like relationships, like not thinking that they're going to be it's not just uncertainty about the future, but it's that, oh my gosh, I might not have enough money. Oh, no, no, I don't know what a career looks like. I don't know what love looks like. Am I going to be loveless moving into the future? And all credit to them being so open and sharing these, you know, you know really personal ex- uh, um, experiences and reflections back on that. Um, and, and then I think those things really speak to some really profound underlying things in our society, like how do we actually attend to mental health in a way that can appreciate the complexity of how youth today are having to navigate the, you know, the system that we have contributed to building and how do we dismantle it in a way that can honor really giving back to that next generation or to use appropriation. I apologize for the seven generations in the future from the indigenous folks that are out there that have done this and have this way of thinking of how do you build a really constructive relationship from past to present. So I I really want to make sure that everything that I'm doing, regardless professional, whether it's research, whether it's anything is really involving when we're thinking about the future, the people who really need to benefit from the future. So it's not me. It's like, I will facilitate that process, that conversation, but it's the needs of the community and the needs of the next generation who need to be involved in that community discussion to what our community is going to look like, what it's going to be like, what it's going to feel like. And that's what I really hope we get to. Like, what does it spiritually connect with? Like, it's, it's like opening up our understanding. It's not like, oh, I need to make sure that the economy is working. It's like human relations and all these things, these tangible, I don't know, sort of really, you know, ethereal, esoteric ideas of what our connected tissue needs to look like in this next generation 
That's what I want to attend to. I don't want to take my structure and force it back down and say, you fix this. It's yeah. important for us to open this up. And that's my role. Like it's really to, I, I, I was laughing with somebody and saying my whole existence right now is a critique. Like that's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you've taken that lens of the critique, you've put it on curling, for example, and just hearing you talk about what we do for the future and how we build the future and how we make sure that we support youth in growing into the society. Sport is a microcosm of anything that's happening in the world. I mean, there's so many things I love about sport, but that's one of the things that I love. And so when you were looking deeply into curling or looking deeply into tennis, you said there was a lot of similarities between the structures and the issues. Can you talk to us a little bit about the findings from your work into both? Yeah, sure. Um, Look at the surface of both of those sports, predominantly white, predominantly male. That's the way that they present. That's the way that a lot of the architecture when we take a look at the design of those sports, that's what we're really dealing with, whether it's organizational structures that have borrowed from hierarchical tendencies in the military and all that stuff. Like that's really what, you know, we haven't critically looked at the way that we organize sport for a hundred years. We've just continued to do it. And part of the reason we do that is because sport is always seen as a benefit, right? So it's not to say that it isn't, there is, you know, obviously physical, mental, um, social skills and, and, and lots of attributes that come out of that. And there's a lot of benefit. The problem is that what happens when you encounter experiences, particularly that are related to identity constructions, that actually detract from that? Are you actually getting the benefit that we think? And so for me, these, these are the sort of the underlying reasons that we have to not just interrogate the sport for being sport, it's like, what are the traditions that are upheld here? What are the cultures? You know, how does it organize? And, you know, it's not like people inside curling don't realize it's a super white sport and there's not a lot of diversity. Like they understand that. The problem is how do you break that down in a way so that you can open up those, those conversations to be different than what they are today? So like I'm walking into a curling club. And the first thing that one of my participants said is like, well, I, if you haven't noticed, like it's, it's super white here. So part of my dissertation, there is, it's, it's actually organized into three screenplays. I'm not going to tell you why I did that. <laughs> it's really to show the conversations that goes on. And you have this one individual saying, well, come on, we're, you know, upholding whiteness here. This is what we're doing. But you have other people talking about, we don't see color. And so here are these flags, which to say, you want it to be welcoming, you want it to be open and available for everybody, but you can't understand the structural consequences of what broader society means for somebody who's racialized or marginalized. And so it's not just that we can walk through the door and once we're there, maybe we'll be accepted. That's great. But even getting in the door becomes such a challenge. So I'm walking into the space and you, you know, and this is a criticism of a lot of curling clubs. I've heard many other people talk about this. The front hallway is a whole bunch of pictures of generally old white guys playing outside, you know, like, you know, historically and showing that's what the representation of this club looks like. So it's, you know, like that's what you're confronted with. So from an outside perspective, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, deep connections to the tradition that's there. 
The problem is when that tradition then creates a barrier for somebody else to walk in. So I, I'll, I'll step into this because it's relevant. I have a tendency to pick on bagpipes. And the whole reason that I was here, and I blame Devin Haru for this, he interviewed me for one of his pieces in CBC Sports. I brought up the idea of bagpipes representing symbology. And it's become this thing where it's like, ah, oh, Rich Norman, he hates the bagpipes. <laughs> the bagpipes are a bad thing. And it even came up, we had a, a symposium uh, in combination with uh, University of Waterloo in, in Curling, Canada. And, and I was up there, you know, moderating a panel and it came up again because my friend, Deb Martin, was saying, I love the bagpipes. It's Rich who doesn't like them. It's, <laughs> it's not about bagpipes. It's about what they symbolize. So that for me, you know, if you're taking a look at the deep roots of tradition and sport and how that reflects based on, you know, Canadian colonialism, you have to start to unpack it's like, well, you know, if somebody's playing the bagpipes, it may actually create resonance with them and their traumatic past that isn't necessarily something that they want to then sort of have to deal with when you're coming into a sport and recreation space. So one of the biggest issues with both those sports is you have to remember that when we think about race in Canada, we always start to go, oh, there's a whole bunch of disenfranchised black and brown people out there that we have to make sure to get into the sport. All the while forgetting, there's a whole lot of black and brown folk that have money, that make choices for themselves and for their children, more importantly, and saying, what and where do I want my kids to have that experience of playing sport? And so if I have to contend with that choice of, oh, this environment may not be as good as this one, boom. I'm going to make this choice. And so that's why you see people going to soccer, maybe basketball, because they can see representation. They can see all those things. If you don't have those in one of those other sports, this creates an immediate barrier before you're, you're even getting them through the door. So that's what, you know, when you think about opening up these sports that are pro predominantly one set or the other, you have to contend with all these issues. And then you get into intersectionality. And it just, layers and layers and layers. So can we talk a little bit about the difference between how a Canadian might experience being welcomed into soccer, which is a great example compared to curling? What do you think are the key things that would make that journey just very, very different? In so many communities, I mean, you know, football or soccer is, it's known internationally in a very different way. So if you think just in terms of new Canadians that are coming, if you're coming from lots of regions, you know, soccer or football is something that you already know, right? And you can see yourself, you can see your kids, you know, all already represented. So it's an easy fit. And they're looking for that connection into the world, right? Of a new place um, that they don't necessarily have a lot of ties with. So, right, this is, I'm completely generalizing here. So, that's the, you know, the thought process and the motivations around, okay, so how do I actually connect into the communities that are here? What's the easiest way to do that? Sport and get my kids involved and then you go through, or even myself. When you're dealing with curling, curling is interesting because it has a draw in a couple of different ways. The first of it, it is one of the most social sports that you can ever be involved in. And this is the thing, like, the reason why I'm so passionate about it and connected with it is that 15 years ago, I went to this weird bond spiel kind of thing. I don't even know what a bond spiel meant. 
I've met people and, you know, I still have relationships with like some of the top curlers or used to be the top curlers of the world through that situation. And I'm sitting there and one of the traditions they have, at least in Eastern Canada, is that the that after the game is done, the winners will buy the losers a round of drinks. You know, I'm not going to say if they're alcoholic or not, <laughs> but that's the tradition. It's very rare to be sitting around a table with a team that you just played against. And, you know, and then it just becomes a social situation where you're connecting with people and you're talking right. about anything. It's not about the game. It's not about you know, you fouled me and, you know, I hate you because of that. Right. It's just like, we're just people and we're talking. So, you know, here I am in this environment. It's one of the most social things. One of the other things is it represents a certain mystique about Canada, right? We think about winter sports. We think about, you know, ice and all this kind of stuff because Canada is super cold, not because there's no ice anywhere else in the world. Right. (laughs) But there's this other draw for new Canadians to come in um, you know, new folks that are, are just coming into the, to this country and saying, I want to actually participate in something that is Canada. So you look at hockey, curling is another one. And it's a very, you know, it's an interesting flavor because it's not quite uh, the same as hockey, but, you know, some of the similarities. One of the participants in the study, um, when I was doing the research said, well, if hockey is our national sport, um, you know, curling is our passion, something like that. Like there's right. a certain thing and in, in, in Heather Mayer talks about, you know, curling being quintessentially Canadian. So the problem for curling is that what if it doesn't represent what Canada looks like anymore or these deep ties to how curling or sort of Canada was formed as a country? That's what you sort of have to contend with and pull apart. So, again, getting back to the challenges of coming into the sport and why soccer is easier because it just it's representative. It has that it has that connection, but there's lots of problems in in soccer as well, and we can go through that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and you talked about hockey, you talked about curling. We're all forgetting ringette. Okay, everyone's forgetting uh, <laughs> ringette is also a beloved Canadian sport. But speaking of which, in September 2022, the movie Black Ice had its world premiere at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. Black Ice is a documentary that examines the role of Black players in Canadian hockey from pre-NHL contributions to the game and the struggles against racism that continues to this day. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience and your reflections on the film? Right. And there was a panel. It was great to... Um, Soraya Tinker was there, Akeem Alou was there, and then Bernice Carnegie, who is everywhere, and she is a force of nature. It was really great to see that representation um i just saw recently like uh, they had another premiere in ottawa because it's being released on crave and it was amazing to see all of those individuals on stage and with you know cameron bailey who's the ceo of tiff and it's just like wait a second we are representing a whole bunch of black folks and, and racialized people from a movie that is you know written about a sport that doesn't necessarily contain a lot of that, at least to the highest level. So, you know, like, I think Black Ice is really important for what it is, right? It's storytelling about the issues around the sport, but also the love of the sport and the contributions from Black folk in Canada to what hockey is. So it's not really that they're separate, it's that it's one big thing. Um, you know, like, there there are organizations that have been promoting and getting um, you know, racialized folks um, into the sport 
for you know 30, 50 years, I'm looking at the little NHL, I'm looking at Seaside, I'm looking at all these different organizations that have been doing this. So it's not like it hasn't been happening. Like, so one of the things I love about Black Ice is it sort of sets that on on you know what it really is, is that black history and hockey is just hockey history. It's all connected, right? The contributions are there. If you take a look at the Maritime um, Colored Hockey League, right? Some of the most innovative things that came out of that league are the reason why the NHL is what the NHL is today. So we think about the slap shot. We think about, you know, butterfly. Think about all that. It's like, that's where it came from. And, and so I was, you know, talking to somebody at the Carnegie uh, Summit that happened saying, just imagine if the color league had all the resources and had continued to be what it is, what would have happened? So that's when you get, that's when I start to say, okay, now we're dealing with structural racism. This is the reason we're not going to make sure that this doesn't exist because it actually could have the potential to supplant what's there. And this is the, the detriment because, you know, what happened is here was a manifestation that happened there was really amazing things that were going on. They didn't have the resources. They pulled community to make sure that this continued to exist. So imagine if it had the support and what hockey could be. It maybe it'd be exactly the same, but I, I would, you know, fantasize that it's going to be different and it's going to be in a more interesting, you know, rewarding place. That to me um, is really important. So the thing I love about Black Eyes is great emotional storytelling, which is necessary just to break apart the narrative of hockey, right? You need to inject all of these other, you know, really complicated ways of understanding what it means to play the game. Um, and I'll talk, you know, like I was talking to another friend of mine, Ryan Francis, who's out in Nova Scotia, and he said something profound. And he's saying like, you know, hey, I'm not here to, you know, to change the structure of the game. I'm here to change the game. And he wants to consider what he does is that everybody is a hockey player. It's not just if you're playing ice. It's like if you're playing floor, if you're playing rollerblades or anything like that, like hockey is hockey. And, and I sort of go back to that feeling like I haven't played hockey in a long time. Okay. So I'm too old. <laughs> My body is broken up. I'm not going to do this, but skating, handling a puck and just, you know, that's what I used to do as a kid. And I, I think I haven't had that feeling of freedom and, and that sort of joy and magic. You know, the only thing that's come close is when I learned how to snowboard because it was the same sort of feeling. Like you're out, you're doing something. It's just yours. Like it's that's the beauty of what hockey can be. We throw these structures and everything else on top of it and the organization and the competitive streams to make sure you get to the NHL. What does that have really to do at the end of the day with the game? To me, it's that beauty. When I'm playing soccer, the, you know, I played well enough that I you know, could play at varsity, but the most fun I had was going out with a couple of my friends and playing one-on-one -on, -one on a goalie. And it was all about like, oh, wow, I nutmegged you and I scored. And then you're running into the corner and you're doing all these crazy <laughs> things. It has nothing to do with playing the game. Because the game is the game. The game is different than we understand it to be. And so that's what I liked about, you know, some of the imagery in Black Eyes. Because it really started to tease at, like, okay, what is hockey? Is it the NHL? Yeah, partly. But really, 
it's that fantastic feeling you get of just skating and playing with your friends and doing that thing, hopefully aside, which is getting, you know, much more challenging these days. <laughs> and has that essence of the joy of the sport and just that singular joyful experience playing, was that the story that stuck with you the most from the film? Um, not the most. I mean, I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. So the story that really resonated with me was like, oh yeah, in the thirties, the Klan had a rally in the same place that I grew up. So that was a bit bizarre to me, <laughs> but I think overall, what, what I really liked is that there are people who have been playing for a lot of time, regardless of the struggles and the challenges, like even going back to, you know, the herbs of the world, the Willie O'Ree's, you know, like it's magic to 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 hear these people's stories and i think like it's sort of capstone of, of seeing someone story tinker at the toronto six now doing amazing things executive director of the black girls hockey club like it, it's incredible to see or sarah nurse and and that crazy goal <laughs> the all-star competition yeah the, it's like I haven't seen a better goal scored, and so so. But it, it wait, it wasn't just the goal though. She made it look so easy, like it was just nothing. Oh my god, yeah. There's that. That's fantastic, and and I think it's really important to have the conversation about race and racism in hockey and the structures that are there. But ultimately, it is just the testament to like, look, you know, black folks have been a part of hockey. They are part of hockey history. Um, you know, the Carnegie Initiative having their their sort of gala event. You know, we were in the Grand Hall of the Hockey Hall of Fame. And it was amazing to have that feeling where all of these racialized folks honoring these amazing trailblazers that have been doing incredible work and, you know, related to Herb Carnegie and what he brought to the game and what other people have brought to the game. There's this rich tradition and legacy. It's like that's that's really important. Dr. Rich, for the listeners that may not be as familiar with Herb Carnegie, uh, he was a Canadian ice hockey player of Jamaican descent, grew up practicing his hockey skills on ponds in Toronto, and noticed at the age of 18 by Con Smythe, the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, he went on to make history in hockey and his legacy sort of lives on. That weekend where you were at the Hockey Hall of Fame and sort of celebrating the Carnegie Initiative Am I right? That was the weekend he was inducted into the Hall of Fame? He was inducted to the Hall of Fame, not that weekend. It had happened before. But part of the story about Herb is that he was denied that opportunity to play because he had to make a choice at the time. And they were saying, well, we'll give you a really cut rate to come and play. And he had to really make that choice of, do you value me? Do you want me? And, you know, I have to support my family. So he was really denied the, the opportunity to play in the NHL and to see, you know, Black Lights, they, they talk about this, like, you know, to see the emotion and what that meant to him being denied. So here you arguably have one of the best hockey players not to play in the NHL just because he was black. And so what does he do? He pivots and he creates a hockey school and he goes on, you know, and live legacy, the future aces and all this stuff. And I didn't know anything about it until I got sort of connected with this. And this is, the, again, the problem with not having these stories in front of people is that this is part of hockey history. It's so important that Herb Carnegie is there. It's so important that, you know, 
that there's so many other people that have been denied that kind of recognition are there. The Sarah nurses of the, of the world, the Soroya Tinkers, they need to be in the Hockey Fall of Fame already, right? Just because of that goal, you know? <laughs> it was 1954 when he founded one of Canada's very first hockey schools. That's the thing. Like, you know, to think about he was denied an opportunity because of, of race and the violence that was directed towards him because of that, right? And having to endure all that. And so what does he do? He pivots and he creates hockey school. That takes so much fortitude, but also grace and saying that I want to add something to this space because it's important to me, right? And in the fact that he played on an all-black line. So you're thinking about you have these amazing players that are all playing together. There's not a black line in the NHL right now. So like, it's, it's so strange to hear these histories and these truths that we don't know about. And this is why something like Black Ice bringing a lot of this and, you know, the legacy of Herb and all of these other stories and, you know, and understanding the Maritime Hockey League and, the, the, and like those are what hockey is. And that's only scratching the surface. If we go, you know, down the intersectional lens and we're thinking about gender, we're thinking about, you know, um, disability, we're thinking about all these things like this really is what hockey is. Right. It's like, you know, all due respect to the Leafs. I'm in Toronto. I'm a Habs fan. Oh, no. That's a great rivalry and all that. But is that hockey? Like, that's one aspect of it. It's really important. But what I think we need to do in this space is like to have these stories rip it apart and challenge our understanding about what we think hockey needs to be and what it can be. And expand that definition. So you mentioned also Willie O'Ree, of course, the very first black player in the NHL. And what aspects of his story have really stuck with you? Well, I, I mean, again, it's the same thing that he was inducted in the Hall of Fame so long after. 2018, yeah. It, it's an amazing story to kind of try to see the process of, of even getting the recognition that those folks deserve in this day and age. And so I think, like, you know, that's a really important legacy, right? It's important to have these honor, these touchstones that we can always go back to, to say as much as, you know, perhaps they're not represented at the elite level right now, hockey is, is really something that we should promote as something that connected tissue that everybody can be along in, regardless of it is or not. I think it's hard to come from the elite level down when we don't think of what it really takes to bring those folks along. So even thinking about, you know, the transition, if you're always denied at a certain point, right, then it opens up. And it still takes like, you know, years and decades for the infrastructure to be in place for the folks that look like you to still have the feeling like I can succeed, right? And you got the PK Subans of the world, you got, you know, but and he's resting on shoulders of somebody else or they go out to grant Fuhrer. Like I grew up in the day and age with him. Right. So to me, I look at, there's, there's always been represent representatives. There hasn't been representation and it hasn't carried over into the, the, the whole structures that are necessary to get a lot of folks that look like you into the same places. And how do we tell the stories of the sports that we love in a way that welcomes in folks from all different backgrounds. Cause ultimately sport is about play and about that human connection and that team experience. Yeah, absolutely. Like to me, 
part of the difficulty for me being this critical mind all the time is I'm always looking back to my experience in doing this. That's not the same as this next generation that has a completely multicultural team, you know, in quotes, and what that means. But if you have all these people in, you know, lots of spaces now that represent people that haven't necessarily had that sort of, you know, that leg up and that that ability to feel like they are accepted and belong, now there, what's going to happen in 10 years? Maybe the whole infrastructure, even on the competitive side, will look different as long as we keep attending to these ideas of the stories and making sure that there's opportunities specifically designed to allow those folks to excel and be in the positions, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's the intersection of everything. That's what we really have to attend to on the structural side. Those people in power, those people that are pushing, if we can do that, then I believe, yes, sport can be this wonderful place. But if we don't do that, I think it's also at risk. So for folks that are listening that are potentially participating in organized sport, or maybe their kids are, or have hopes and dreams to, what would you recommend to them to make their environments more inclusive, to ask those questions and also participate in the process? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a really complicated question. But I'll just put it that way. So I'll, I'll flip it around. So from you know the parent's point of view or people coming, thinking about the participation, I think that you have to do some research and I think you have to understand what you're getting into um, and what reasons you're going to be there. What I mostly focus is on on the other side. Like, what are we doing to open and make sure those spaces are more conducive to the people that perhaps haven't been in that space before? And what does that look like? What does that represent? Everything from safe sport all the way up to taking a look at the idea of inclusion. What does it mean? The difficulty with doing that within a sport or sports that are so dominant, right? like hockey, like curling, is inclusivity means included into what? And perhaps that's why we have to sort of ask some deeper probing questions at the structures and maybe offer different kinds of solutions so that it's not assimilation. It's actually, you know, no, you're going to experience this on your own terms. You're going to grow to love it. I mean, that's why something like the Black Girls Hockey Club is so important because Actually, it's transforming. Exactly. You need to have those spaces where, you know, joy of a game, but also the connection with the people who look like you, um, where you're not having to check over your shoulder and think that something potentially could come and do something or something's going to happen. Those things are removed. And so that you can have a purely, you know, I don't know, unique experience in those spaces. And then I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. I mean, part part of the, the issue with dominant sports is they sort of look, oh, multiculturalism, you know, we have a more diverse population. There are multiple ways to focus how you want to approach that. One is a business, you know, opportunity. Okay, so we can grow the sport. And so what I have to deal with in my space is that you have all these same sports that are going after the quote-unquote BIPOC youth that are out there as this sort of limitless, you know, pool of untapped resources. But if everybody is going after youth, 
at a certain point, we kind of saturate like, all right, well, we've offered all these opportunities. Is that really changing the structures that, where people want to belong? Where do they want to be? The other thing is that we hold on to sport as being super precious. It's benefit. I mean, if you come in here, you're going to like learn all these great things. Well, maybe, but what about the other side? What about actually connecting with community first, finding it what the needs of the community are, and then trying to build it from that standpoint? Because honestly, maybe it isn't sport, maybe recreation, maybe leisure, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's something else. There's actually a better way of fostering all those things that we have. Now, I'm not going to say I'm a sport guy, right? I mean, I love that, but I also grew up with that in such a specific way that I was told over and over and over, 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 over that it was great. So I think that we just need to also attend to the complexity of what our communities are and offering the opportunities that aren't just necessarily driven around sport and making sure that they're inclusive. The other thing is that I think most organizations have to be realistic about what inclusion actually means. Because you can't be truly, truly inclusive to everyone. When you're starting to, you know, to get to the subjectivities and the identity constructions of, of how we organize our world, you can't be fully inclusive to every single representation that's there. So what is your goal? What is your outcome? And what are your value structures to make sure that those people feel like they can be their full selves. That's what we're really trying to get to rather than, yep, look at across the board. We got everybody and everybody's looked after, right? That's just it's a jambalaya. A <laughs> it's a jambalaya. Yeah. It's not a realistic outcome. I'm picturing when you described the outreach to youth, I'm picturing all these different pathways, potentially pulling folks into the same system, right? And how do we make sure that all of that well-intended outreach isn't then landing folks in a space that isn't equipped to make the best use of their time and maybe give them all of those incredible things that we believe sport can give them. And have you seen examples of that not working? And more importantly, have you seen any examples of it working in some systems change that makes you very hopeful? Yeah, like, I mean, I'll start with the last part. I think there are lots of examples of things working. Um, I think that people, you know, out in the world know what what are the good things that can happen. Like, I mean, go back to the Black Girls Hockey Club yet again. Here is a really positive and an amazing outcome. It's not just about hockey. It's about a whole bunch of other things. So that's one aspect. Like, you know, Marco Debrona at Jumpstart talks about this a lot. It's like we're talking about the ecosystem around hockey. It's not just one thing. It's not the organized sport that necessarily has to, you know, evolve and make sure that everything is okay for everybody. Perhaps we can have all these different approaches and ways to connect with the sport or multiple sports. And what do those look like? Well, perhaps we have to open up our understanding like thinking of governance structures that have been basically constructed and they haven't changed in a long period of time. So is that necessarily the right approach? And if we're going to flip it around to promote and privilege grassroots, do we have to think about the same structures that we fit into? Like one coach for a team or even two. Mm -hmm. What about, you know, 10 for 10 different teams and everybody pulls resources together? Like there's so many different models and approaches to sport that we just don't try because it's complicated. It's hard. It's not what people know, 
when I was coaching soccer for my son, when he was really young, it was like, all right, we're going to take scoring out because that that's going to make it less competitive. <laughs> Every kid on the field knew exactly what the score was. <laughs> but the the magic of that was, so we had some kids that were on the team that were new to Canada. They weren't the best players. And I can still remember, and I sort of, like, I remember this one kid scoring a goal and our whole team just left the field and like we're <laughs> celebrating that kid's achievement. Didn't matter what the score was. And there was some beauty in that. And I get choked up because like, that's what sport is. Like, that's what we can get to. It's creating those moments of connection. We have like these weird structures on top, which I think deter us from getting to those points easier because we have to, you know, always contend with what's around. And, you know, look, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that competitive sport isn't important. I think it is like there, there has to be a way of doing that. But if we're spending so much time and effort thinking about the recreational side, we got to be able to do it in different ways. Like it doesn't have to be this hierarchical model that all feeds into something because two people out of you know 10,000 are going to actually get to that elite level, right? It's funny when you put it that way, the majority of the people won't. So shouldn't the system support the majority of the people that are participating in it? Yeah, I, I think we, we don't have another hour for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I just think that we need to flip it a little bit. You know, we have to understand what our outcomes are. What does success look like? You know, going back to those criteria, I think, you know, it has been heavily in favor of moving, like, you know, progressions and getting to that next level, that elite level. Um, but I think that's starting to change. And I think that there are really positive signs that people are aware of that. And now the real challenging work of system change to get to a different kind of outcome, that's, that's the work. And, and that's what needs to happen. Can you fast forward 20 years from now? What do you imagine and wish for the landscape of sport in Canada? Well, 20 years from now, like realistically, I don't want it to look anything like it looks like to now. Honestly, it's really the organizational structures that we have in place. I don't think serve the sport well enough to do the things that we need to do to really afford all kids the opportunities. Part of being a futurist is I'm always thinking about those kinds of conditions. And it's partly one of the things we need to do today is actually think about those 20 year horizons and actually construct what a different system could look like. We can do that today, right? We know different models, different ways of organizing it. Forget about all the past, you know, like all the pitfalls of getting to there. But if we can imagine it, then there is a target to go to. Right now, the difficulty is like, let's go change the system. And we don't really have a good roadmap to get there. So even today, my it's more of like a today thing to imagine what 20 years is, is that we have to go attend to what that 20 years looks like right now because we're not doing it in a really constructive way we're just saying we got to change things so there's lots of good change out there and you know as futurists i'm going to rely on one of the most overused quotes but william gibson speculative future writer says like the future is already here it's not really just not um evenly distributed and so there are pockets of what the future is that are around us all the time the question is, how do we actually take those learnings, project them, 
into the future to reimagine what our society could be like. And then we have a, a better roadmap to get there. We're just not really attending to that and really sort of looking around us and saying, hey, there's great stuff happening. So we could look differently at sport and its organizational structure and the way it operates in different communities and, 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 and take those learnings collectively and move this forward, right? It's all crisis. Oh my gosh, everything's broken. You know, how can you know, has to deal with this? I and mean, we have to deal with that. But if we can step away from our day-to-day, -day, from the, you know, the operational and strategic plan, that four-year window, 20 years, how do we get to this new future? And then start to walk back to today. You know, that that is my hope. <laughs> That's my hope that that happens today so that we really can achieve a different 20 years from now. Amazing. Less firefighting, more new building. Yes. I, that's a great way of saying it. You know, see, I'm too wordy. <laughs> so I would know, like when you were talking, I was picturing like people just playing Jenga and just putting the same blocks on top of each other and trying to find different spots in the same structure. And what you're talking about is let's just take the best pieces and build a new tower. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting theoretical things, like you go back to Derrida and he talks about difference and the whole deconstruction. I know I'm going to be theoretical because I'm an academic. That's what I do. <laughs> Part of the conversation that we never actually talk, it's not just about deconstructing things. It's exactly what you do in the name of the lab. It's that you have to basically deconstruct things to actually regenerate and construct something different. And the problem is that we're all afraid, oh, if we deconstruct everything, we like blast everything apart. Then what do we do? Well, the idea is that we take all those pieces and we reform them in a different way. And if it doesn't work, we do it again, mm -hmm. and we do it again. And this is in those iterations where we're going to get this, you know, this lovely learning that's actually going to lead to something completely different. But if we think that we can take a monolith and take one piece out and like put it over here and reorganize it, that everything's going to be different, then we're just setting ourselves up for failure. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. What an incredible conversation with Dr. Richard Norman. The amount of Google searches I did for terms from curling that I've never heard before. <laughs> okay, teach us about curling then. Okay, so the two that he said that he didn't hear about before, and when he said bonspiel, I was like, oh, bonfire. No, 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 that is a curling tournament. I was like, why did he go to a bonfire and they started talking about curling? So then he said draw. That is the amount of ice that a stone curls when traveling down the sheet. Like, that's just a sentence that I've never heard in my life before, but that's how they measure it. The button? Did you get that one too? What is a button, Sonia? Yes. The button is the center of the house. And the house is? <laughs> the house looks like a bullseye, but in ice. Sonia, have you played, have you played curling before? Unsuccessfully. Yes. Okay. So that it didn't, it didn't curl as you expected. No. And you also have to be extremely flexible and skilled to get low and stay low and stay steady. It's incredible what they do. That's just one skill in one position. Yeah, I feel like the athleticism of curling is very underappreciated. Agreed. And it's such a delicate touch that you're doing as you're letting go of the stone. 
Have any of you two heard of a game called Crokinole? No. I've heard of it. Okay, so this is another game of Canadian origin. It's more of a, I guess, board game. So Mm. the principle of it is very similar to curling. So you have this large circular board and you each have your little wooden like pucks and you're trying to flick the piece of wood into the center of the crokinole board. The button. Yeah. And actually, I think in crokinole, it's called a toad hole. (laughs) which is just whimsical and so you're trying to get us either in there or as close to it as possible and you also will try to flick your opponent's pieces off of the board as well so i think that's similar right yeah we seem we seem to like these types of games in canada we do except this game that you're explaining reminds me a lot of a game that's played in india with a board it's called carom board which is also round wooden blocks I thought you were going to say kabaddi. No, Sonia. <laughs> Do you know what kabaddi is? Yes. Okay. It's not similar whatsoever. Okay, I was looking for an excuse to bring up kabaddi. <laughs> Go for it, Sonia. Tell us more about kabaddi. <laughs> Enlighten me. It is a contact sport. It's already very different from curling <laughs> or crokinole. I was going to say it really is. It actually is really different. The, but the best part of it, as you run over, you have to say kabaddi, 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 kabaddi. Do you know this, Amar? I do, from Bollywood movies, I yeah. know. <laughs> okay. There's actually a professional kabaddi league in India, and they had over 400 million viewers. Like, it's very popular. To Elizabeth, it sounds like we're making up the sport as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does the word mean? So the word meaning, it's apparently derived from the Tamil words kai which literally mean let's hold hands because part of it is you're holding hands as you're running across so we really should have practiced this so (laughs) (laughs) elizabeth's like what are we talking about her face is just like i'm gonna let them keep going till i figure this out myself (laughs) i think you should just watch a round of it but yes you have to you have to hold hands you have to go to the other side you have to keep saying kabaddi 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 like And you tackle each other. And you tackle each other. And then you have to make it to the other side. And things like this is what I've seen in Bollywood movies. That's so interesting. I think there's just a lot of interesting sports and games that have been created across so many cultures. The more you know. Oh my gosh, there's a European Kabaddi Championship. First held in Scotland in 2019. The final match was between Poland and Holland. Poland won the tournament. Congratulations. Final score was Poland 47, Holland 27. Apparently 1936 Summer Olympics, Kabaddi was uh, one of the sports. But it's come up more, but that's the first first time it got its international um, exposure. Curling has been in the Olympics for quite some time. Team Great Britain did an incredible job at the last Olympics. This is me trying to call an Olympics right now, live. As long as you don't bring up the 2010 Winter Olympics. I'm you good. did. I didn't even have to because it's still on your mind too. It's on the minds of Canadians everywhere. You did this to us. 